Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, this is going to be interesting. This is the small book of Jude that punches well above its weight class. And there's enough unique subject matter in here that I think you're going to find this a lot more interesting than perhaps you might have thought. There's a lot in here. I know of one minister who I think took six or eight weeks of a preaching series through the book of Jude. And you can actually do that and not be grinding up the same old ground the whole time. We're not gonna do that here. We're gonna go through it rather quickly, but I think you'll be interested. First of all, Jude. Jude is generally thought to be the half-brother of Jesus. The name Jude and Judas also are the name James. They're just slight variations. They're very, very common. And so Jude here, again, we could go through all the history. But whenever you pick out the writings of early Christians, it seems the most likely character to have written this book is Jesus' half-brother, which means this was written by somebody who did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, for his brothers did not. The scripture is rather plain about that. And so here's a kind of a latecomer. Certainly didn't come as soon as Peter and the others did. So let us have a look at what this fellow has to say. Now some, by the way, question that this could be Jesus's brother because it's very Hellenistic or very Greek in its language. In fact, there are 13 words and terms used here that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. That does not surprise me, but it doesn't to me indicate that this is not the same Jude who was raised in Jesus's household because people write different. I mean, my, my dear beloved sister and I are very, very different people. We're very close, we love each other, we work well as a team, but whenever she talks to you about something, she'll use different words and phrases than I will. Well, does that mean we're not related? No, <clears throat> means we had different lives, different experiences, but we're still speaking about a common cause. And we can use that illustration, you can use it in your life with people that you went to school with, and yet you grow up and you use different terms. And so now I think this is the half brother of Jesus. And of course we always say half brother because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and then born of Mary. And his brothers and sisters would be born of Mary and conceived of Joseph. See, got it, there we are, good, all right. Um, There, you know, some people will say, well, we're not really sure we should use the book much because it wasn't quoted that often in early Christian writings. It's very true, but it's also very short. And that would explain why they don't quote it very much because it's not like Romans, for goodness sake. It's not like this big, huge treatise. In fact, it's, it's kind of a postcard uh, version of Romans in that, you know, this big old thing and then there, this postcard from Jude saying, watch out, there's danger afoot. That's basically, you know, it, it, it's not a, I wish you were here. It's a watch out postcard. 
um, it quotes a couple of books that are not in our Bible. The Assumption of Moses and the Apocalypse of Enoch. And it quotes from the Book of Enoch. Now, all of these books, here, here we have three apocryphal books quoted in this one little book. All of these books were read by early Christians. All of these books were treasured by early Christians. Most of them were also read and treasured by the Jews. Then why didn't they make it into scripture? Because they were considered useful, considered good, but not considered scripture. And there, there are a whole lot of ways that they figured out which books should be in the Bible or not. And it wasn't always as clean as you might have wanted it to be in that, all right, it hit these three criteria, so it's in. There were a lot of arguments and such going back and forth. The Assumption of Moses, we don't really have. We just have fragments of it. The Apocalypse of Enoch is a very difficult book. It makes Ezekiel look easy. The Book of Enoch is fascinating. I own copies of the Book of Enoch. If you get a modern day version of it, it's a lot of fun to read. And it is still hallowed by Christians worldwide but it's not considered scripture, except for a very few small groups of Christians. So it, it, all of that's in these few verses. <clears throat> it is amazing. But what is it talking about? I, I feel we need to have that laid down first. This is a period of history before the Gnostic movement was in full swing. Gnosticism is one of the most complex difficult subjects to study and define that I've ever known in my life. And I work with quantum physics and neuroscience. Quantus, uh, Gnosticism is almost an umbrella term from the words for wisdom. They believe that once you understood certain facts about the universe, that profound changes would then take place. Gnosticism had several branches. One was that said, well, now that we know these things, there are no laws. Our bodies mean nothing. And so we can do with our bodies what we wish. And we call that the libertine branch. There was also the aesthetic branch, which said, now that we know that the earth and all bodily things are of no value, we will not treat our body with any care. And so they didn't eat well, they did not take care of themselves. They, uh, they rejoiced in physical suffering. Uh, so there was that one right beside the Libertine. And then there were others that just fell into deep depression. But here's the idea, basically, that no thou shalt or thou shalt not applies because those, doesn't, those don't come from God who is above the world. He transcends the world. The word that is often used, transmundane. God is transmundane. He is, he is so perfect and so beautiful that he would never sully himself with the dirt and the stains of the earth and sweaty little stinky humans that have stuff coming out of them both ends. He has no interest in that. But these things, us, the world, what we can see, were created by archons or minor gods, demiurges, as they were also called. And so to get separation between the almighty creator God and then things that are created without staining God with the things that are created, they 
put in a whole long rank of different gods, archangels, angels, different heavenly creatures to, to create that separation. So Gnostics deny that Jesus was the Christ because if, if he was God, he would never put on human form. Now there are variations of that as well. Some said he never did put on human form, that this, um, this man Jesus, every now and then Christ entered him, did something pretty good and then left. There are others that believe that um, God didn't, uh, God left the man on the cross, you know, then he put another one in. It's just so complex. But the whole point is that you are dirty, stinky, awful, and almighty God, who is the greatest, righteous, and purest, would not have anything to do with creating something like you or this world. Viruses, thorns, hot days, cold days. You get the idea. So he's too perfect. And therefore, once we get this knowledge, that saves us. And it doesn't matter what the body does. All right. Are you super clear on this now? There will be a quiz. Another one. All right. Let's have a look. We've, we've talked enough. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Well, a couple things standing out just very quickly. Jude, the brother of James, which James? Well, because we believe this was Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, we also believe this was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was ruler over the church in Jerusalem. And while that may make a few of you squirm, the term for James in scripture is that he was ruler over the church in Jerusalem. So just remember when people say they want to restore that primitive first century church, we have to shrug our shoulders and say, which one? Now, the wild, crazy, chaotic first and one in Corinth, uh, the very, very Jewish one that even though apostles went there, a non-apostle ruled that church and gave out edicts for other churches. Now, they're not comfortable with that either. Uh, God never asked us to restore something from the first century except for our allegiance to Jesus and our dedication to love. Um, I'm sorry, we've wasted a lot of time doing other things. So that, and then the other, did you notice that mercy, grace, and peace be yours in abundance? Where have we heard that before? From Peter, first Peter, second Peter, so once again, these two seem to have made common cause, which makes a lot of sense, actually, when you realize the circles that Peter moved in and Jude being a Jew and the brother of a man that rules the church in Jerusalem, they would have known each other and known each other well. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Um, when I was a boy, there was a paper called Contending for the Faith that really was run by one gentleman who just wanted to attack all other preachers in his movement. And it was, it was, it was not a happy day when those got, you know, came in the mail, although my father tracked with him and uh, we even had him in our house several times. And he, uh, he encouraged us and such. Later, when he realized we weren't 100% with him, it went the other way and fast. He took here 
this his phrase, the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the faith, contend for the faith. Well, there's the thing. Recently, someone came up, and when I say recently, it'd be two months ago, because I'm actually in March recording this, came up to one of my family members and said, well, we've heard what Patrick preaches, and we have some, you know, I just, we just can't even tolerate that. I'm just going to have to talk to him. And I'm going, well, tell, here's my email. I put it out almost three times a week on the internet, and it's also on a website, and you can get my phone this way, and phone number's on my business card. You can call and talk to me, but I'm going to warn you, when you do, I'm going to ask you who told you that and who told them that, and we're going to trace it. So when you look here, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the faith, to the saints, I would like for you to notice something. There is a past tense here. It was already done by early to mid 60s. It was done. Now, not all of the New Testament had been written yet. We still have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We still have Revelation yet to go, at least. Most likely, we still have the Gospel of John to be written. So are those um, not anything to do with our faith? Do we throw away the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation? Do we uh, just toss those out? Because it's already been entrusted to the faith. It's already been entrusted to the saints. I keep saying faith. Uh, what do we do with the other? Plus, what is that faith? The faith, he doesn't even feel a need to define, but if we look at the rest of the book and he's talking about don't be Gnostic, and this was really before they called themselves Gnostics, don't be a denier of Christ. We know what the faith is. Paul even said, my gospel is that Jesus was born, raised, preached, died for us, raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, and intercedes for us. That's the faith. And all these other things may be very, very beautiful. I have never seen the Sistine Chapel except in pictures and films and documentaries. I'd really love to see it. I just don't have the kind of money to travel about the world that I would really like to have. And besides, we're going to members of our Safe Harbors home. And if you want us to come to your, your village, we need to know where you live. So you can send that to us. We'll keep it private. And until unless you you say I'd like to meet people around me but send that to us at uh, info at rsafeharbor.com but never been to Italy uh, there are a lot of countries that I've never been to and that shocks people since I've traveled so much but I've traveled in different places I would love to see the Sistine Chapel but to put that kind of mon money time and labor in I think is very valuable for the human race art beauty uh, I think that's very valuable. But, and then to, to offer that over to God is very, very valuable. But all of those are add-ons that are just valuable. Our faith is not in liturgies. Our faith is not in creeds, although creeds may accurately state what our faith, are, uh, faith is. Uh, our faith is in Christ and the deity of Christ. And our command is to love each other and to do so in the manner of Christ. That should keep you busy. And yet we've piled on all of these others and, and said, oh no, you shouldn't worship on a Sunday, you should worship on a Saturday. What are you talking about? You're both heathens. And they just, the faith was delivered. Now we just have to work on how does it look to live out that faith in our time, our place, and to do so in a, well, uh, in a way that pleases Christ. 
So it was already delivered back then, long before the church that this fellow sitting out the, the paper attacking others had been founded. And although he claimed his church was a primitive church, first century Christianity, there was nothing in those churches that looked like anything in Jerusalem, Corinth, Corinth um, Ephesus. No, it was just a primitive version cobbled together out of many books and a lot of assumptions. And it was done so with people that had good hearts and good intentions. So I have no intention of being sarcastic or angry or making fun of them. For the fact is, I'm sure I'm making mistakes as well. Isn't it good though to know we are not saved by our precise uh, doctrinal understanding or our precise worship style. We are saved by the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. But here some people have crept in. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Notice that there are two places, uh, two different uh, descriptors here. One is that they have given us license for immorality. And this would be those that say, all right, the body means nothing, uh, so we can do with it as we please. You know, sexually, gluttony, whatever that might mean. Remember that in scripture, you are not your body. Your body does not define you. Your sex, it does not define you. Your race, your place on this world, what your nationality was, these things do not define you. You are made in the image of God, that defines you. You are spirit, that defines you. And so when these people then create such a distance between God and humans, that humanity is relegated down to a place of insignificance. They say, now we know we are spirit, so our bodies can do what they want. God has not worked like that. God has always come down and engaged with the material. Take a look at the, the earliest stories we have. God creates the universe. It wasn't archons or demiurges, it was God. And then God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. God supplies their needs. He later gives them the sacrifice system. He calls Abraham out of Ur. He is always engaged in humanity. He is not off somewhere on the throne. He is here. He is around us and he is in all and through all. You know, you, you know those phrases if you're uh, Bible school people. So these people were trying to find a way to get you to separate what you believe from what you do. And that's always a path to destruction. But the second thing was they denied that Jesus was the Christ, our sovereign Lord, because that becomes a problem. If you are trying to separate God and humanity, what do you do with Jesus? And that's where all sorts of different versions of Gnosticism, Gnosticism came out, like uh, Docetism. You can look them up if you want to, but I, I promise you, once you start going down the Gnostic rabbit hole, uh, you really need flow charts, Excel sheets, and probably a collie dog to guide you through some of it's just the things we will come up with 
so that we don't have to be like God wants us to be and we don't have to do what God wants us to do. The things we will come up with. So again, remember, there are people today that will still tell you to do with your bodies as you wish without realizing we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we are to protect these bodies and care for these bodies. That God loves these bodies. And as offensive as that evidently was to some of his angels, we'll come up on that in the book of Jude as well. And as offensive as that is to the Gnostics, yeah, and yes, they still do exist. A lot of the new age movement that was really bursting around 1980s, early 90s, and is still out there in many forms, is a direct descendant of Gnosticism. We are not denying Christ, not in our belief, nor in our behavior. It's very, very important. Whenever you get worked up, riled up, you want to post a meme on, on social media, you want to go after somebody or what, just wait a minute. Uh, are your actions revealing your Savior, your Sovereign, and your Lord? I always find it wonderful that sometimes when the apostles would be speaking, people would, in Scripture would say, they heard them and they knew they had been with Jesus. That's kind of a goal for me. I want to, I want to make that a goal in my life, that when people hear me, they'll say, well, he must have been with Jesus. I will frankly admit that I'm certainly not there yet, but I'm sure working on it. Well, these, though you already know all this, I want to remind you, who does that sound like? Peter, both in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. The idea of once saved, always saved, that people push, that's a, that's a difficult one. Because in scripture, there were those that were saved and then those that were destroyed. Now, as, as we've talked about in the sermon series that we did on Sunday mornings in late February and early to mid-March, uh, there there's a good case to be made for annihilation. Uh, there's a good case to be made for universalism in various forms. Uh, and I think you probably could make a case for infernalism, the, the traditional Catholic view of burning for you know, millennia in a hell. I don't think there's that much evidence for that one, but regardless, we do see that God is not intending that any should perish. He's fighting for you. He's trying to save you. He's not looking for ways to not save you. But be careful that when you die, you don't need remedial punishment, colossus in the, in the Greek, that you are, are clothed with Christ. Now, that does not mean that you die without sin. The blood of Christ continually cleanses us of all sins. It is those that have never known Christ or have rebelled against Christ, those do receive punishment. And that punishment is meant to be a cleansing, restorative one. And again, go back to those sermons if you've not heard them, because right now some of you are probably scratching your head. Also go back to the Monday morning messages of about a year ago or so, where I did, I think it was four of them on who told you about hell. So look those up too. Uh, I think they'll answer all your questions. And if they don't, then you get in touch with me. I'm very easy to find. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Several interesting things here. What's he talking about, for one? 
there are those who will say that he's referring back to the Nephilim. And we did a Monday morning message on that. Um, in fact, I probably have that here on when that was scheduled to be done. Uh, people, uh, where are we going? That would be for May the 1st. So if you've not heard that, go back to May the 1st and you'll hear my talk on a Nephilim. Uh, a Nephilim, if we're being pedantic and pronouncing it the, the Hebrew way. They, because they left their own home. I'm, I'm not convinced that's who he's talking about. Leaving your own home is another way of saying that you refuse to do your job. Therefore, you're out of heaven. There were angels we know that Satan seduced into thinking that we are not worth it. And he rebelled against the plan of God. He did not think that we were worth all of the trouble, the trial, and certainly not Almighty God making that journey to becoming flesh. And they rebelled. But another thing which is very interesting here, while we've heard of some angels chained, we know that a lot of fallen angels are not changed, including Satan. And we wonder the why about all of that. Well, to be honest, we don't know. And we can't know from scripture. There are a whole lot of extra scripture books, those apocryphal books that really try to work this out. And some of them do it through fantastic stories. Some of them try really hard through logic, but all of it's human reasoning. And we do know in this verse, it looks like they're all chained up, but they're not. So be aware that Jude does something here. He uses language the way people talk. He's not using law, uh, lawyer ease. He's not trying to nail down every single thing with amazing precision because we know some angels are loosed. And besides, even those who agree <clears throat> that angels, some are loosed and some are chained, talk about, well, this revelation passage says this one's gonna be loosed. Well, here it says, until judgment on the great day. The fact is, early Christians weren't entirely certain what had happened with the angels and what the judgment day would look like. And we do get various stories. I just always tell people, just trust God. He's got this. But I do believe, I, I think the evidence to show that there were enough angels that had enough power or had done enough damage that God locked them down. The others, he, he did not feel were that dangerous to us. Do you remember, he says with every temptation, there will be a way of escape. There's no temptation that has befallen us, which is not common to people. Look and see how other people dealt with this. Find a way, plan your escape before you do anything else. If you speak to somebody involved in special operations in particular, but any um, contact military or first responders, if they're well trained, you can sit with them as I have with many and said, what would you use as a weapon in the room? And they've already picked it out. If something happens, they've already decided to go to this and fight with that because they're aware things happen, but there are ways to fight it. And I'll also ask them, where's your egress? How do you get out of the room? And they already have at least one and generally two different ways out of that room. And many of them are not obvious ways. And I really respect those men and women whose job is to be on the front line where darkness can collide with light, 
who actually do the, the, the mental work in whatever situation they're in. We're supposed to do that in spiritual warfare. What is your way out? How are you getting out of here? What is your, how are you going to fight this? Well, James here tells us some of these angels are chained up. He's, he indicates all, but we know in scripture, it's still a battlefield. Make a plan. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The word eternal there to us would mean uh, lasting until the end of God's purpose. Now, if you don't believe that, then Sodom and Gomorrah must still be burning. They're not. They burn until they're done. You know, uh, even Jonah said he was forever in the belly of the whale. Well, he was there for three days, but that's forever because they don't use the word eternal in the Old Testament like we use the word eternal. In fact, the Hebrews did not have that concept of never ending, always there. So they would use a word, eternal, everlasting, to the end of the age, that just meant until God's purposes were fulfilled. So again, go back and listen to the ones on hell if, if you have any questions. We're running up very, very close to 30 minutes and we're not very far into the book, but it's a really, really interesting and deep book. So I hope that you'll hang with us. I hope you'll come back and see us next week as we do finish the book of Jude and then launch into three amazing books written by an amazing apostle. But for now, thank you. Please subscribe. When this was two months early, but when this was being made, we were just 10 away from 3,500 subscribers. Do you think you could help us get that? Subscribe and hit the like button. Have other people subscribe. That'll help us rise up easier in the Google rankings so that people will actually see the videos, that they'll know they're there. And if you hit the bell, you'll be alerted every time you that we put one up, which is three times a week with a couple of special videos sometimes posted during the week, but no more than that. So do that for us if you will. Thank you for those of you that contribute. That's amazing. Go to our website, rsafeharbor.com. Play around there with the people map. And if we don't have your address, we can't come see you. And we'd like to do that. God bless. We'll see you next week.